came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hi, everyone. We're back. Episode two of season five. Exciting. Yes, good to be with you all. And uh, we have something really great uh, planned for today. Following on from last episode with David Pravat, I just loved all his stories last time. Um, and just the, the humor and the enthusiasm was infectious. <laughs> Hopefully everybody enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, but we have another incredible episode for you today. As we mentioned in the first episode, in this season, we're going back to basics because we really want to revisit the concept of disaster that we have really been touching upon throughout the previous four seasons, but never really unpacked in detail. And today we have the best guest to discuss what disasters are and how and why they happen, Dr. Susanna Hoffman, whose work is well known to all disaster researchers. Susanna is a disaster anthropologist. She chairs the Risk and Disaster Commission of the International Union of Anthropological and Ethnographic Science. And she helped to write the UN Statement on Women and Disasters. She also serves on the Task Force on World Food Problems. Welcome to the podcast, Susanna. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we're really excited. We've, we've been hoping to um, interview you for a long time for Disasters Deconstructed. So today's the day and um, it's going to be really fun. Um, so, Susanna, it's so interesting how the definitions of disasters have changed over the years. In 1992, UNDHA defined disasters as threatening event or the probability of occurrence of a potentially damaging phenomenon within a given time period and area. So this focused mainly on the hazard and gradually the definition has evolved, focusing on vulnerability. So for you, what is a disaster? Well, first, in the disaster definition you just mentioned, I would take away the word threatening. You're right, that that uh, leads to thinking of hazard or exposure to some kind of peril. Mm -hmm. But it's not really a disaster. It's a threat of a disaster. And anyone who's been through a disaster, and I'm one, would tell you it's real. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a threatened event. So I like to go back to a basic one that Tony Oliver Smith and I came up with, and we um, and I use it uh, constantly, and that is a process or event combining a potentially destructive agent or force from the natural, or you might call it the uh, physical plane, the modified or built environment. Um, and a population in a socially and economically produced condition of vulnerability, resulting in a perceived disruption of the customary relative satisfactions of individual and social needs for physical survival, social order, and here's a key one, and for meaning. Mm. And uh, that is becoming increasingly uh, 
recently the focus, um, not just the destruction of the social order or um, subsistence of, uh, of a physical survival, but the meaning and well-being of the people that are impacted. So why do you think that we have so many different understandings of disaster and debate about what it is and what kind of agendas are at play, what kind of ideologies are at play when we see these different um, kind of debates arising? Um, I'll give you some reasons. Um, in the first place, for a very long time, the uh, idea of dealing with disaster was physical solutions. So mm. the physical sciences uh, largely took over uh, and were very a strong voice, still are a very strong voice. So they will have such things as uh, barricades and levees mm -hmm. and uh, taking down mountaintops or building seawalls or building, you know, some kinds of, of uh, physical solutions. Um, mm. In the town where I'm living in, the creek, uh, and I'll say that Western style, creek, <laughs> that, uh, that has caused a number of floods in, in, the, in the town have been, they just simply picked up and moved the creek. The problem mm. with that is it now floods down the new channels. So um, the, that, that was one way of looking at it. The other was that another way that, uh, that has disrupted the idea of, of disaster and how to handle them is the idea of search and rescue and, phys and, and um, recovery. Mm -hmm. So instead of being faced with risk or risk reduction, which is much more the discussion now, how to eliminate exposure, how to eliminate vulnerability. Um, the idea was to wait for the disaster to happen and then come in and take care of it. That is still very pervasive. Um, mm. And then, of course, the idea that disasters uh, fell into two categories. Uh, one was natural, that comes from the environment. So we have this pervasive notion of natural disasters. Yeah. And the other was technological and, oh dear, that was human caused. And that the first one didn't even cause looking for uh, the where it emanated from, what was mm -hmm. the cause of a so-called natural disaster, because it was some kind of um, spiritual will or environmental will. The right. other usually caused a witch hunt, because then you would go after who caused Chernobyl. Right. Or who caused uh, that? That's gotten very muddled now because we now realize that that there is no such thing as a natural disaster. Mm. They are all human caused at one level or another, and if they are all human caused, the, the solutions are social and cultural, mm. mm -hmm. and so our attention has turned to what has brought those about, what is causing vulnerability, what is. Uh, causing the, the tremendous increase in disasters which we're seeing. Yeah, that, that's that's great. Um, perfect segue to my next question as well. Um, because um, we've seen, I think, in recent years, the shift, right, in definitions, like, for example, the definition of disaster that is used by UNDRR um, and Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction. And so those definitions of disaster, they now do focus on vulnerability and, you know, they acknowledge the underlying root causes that you've just been talking about. But when we actually look at the international frameworks, at these international frameworks in detail, 
we realized that these definitions don't actually match the approach to measuring disaster risks, which still remains very much hazard focused, right? Because it's mostly about kind of impact and loss um, and data that can be quantified. And so the narrative of, say, again, Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, an easy example, um, kind of shows the appreciation of root causes, um, but the measurement of progress towards disaster risk reduction remains event or hasn't centric, right? Rather than actually telling us something about the development and root causes. So why do you think this is? And, you know, do you think we can actually ever change such an approach to measuring and talking about disasters? You know, mostly this has been Western society driven and Western thinking driven. And mm. event is a, like a punctuation in linear thinking. Mm and gives us a focus to say, uh, there's always progress, but here's this punctuation, here's this event. Not all people think that way, of course. Some people are, are circular thinkers, um, and they see disaster as a repetitive cycle. The truth of the matter is, even as linear thinkers, what we have been missing is that disasters have chronology. They all have chronology. They are built over time, they are built by processes or human action, uh, such as moving the creek or um, placing people in a very large city on a coastline or, say, between uh, Thessaloniki and Istanbul, building ever a lot more cities and more towns along the North Anatolian fault line. Mm -hmm. um, these are decades in the process. Um rebuilding Joplin, Missouri without any tornado hatches, mm. uh, even though they had just been through one. These are slow, imperceptible. You could, you, we, we think of disasters in two ways, right? Rap, uh, a, a rapid onset, unexpected. Here comes mm -hmm. the volcano, here comes an earthquake. Or slow processes like uh, desertification, um, uh, climate change. Uh, the truth is they all have chronology, um, especially when you consider the social elements that lead to them. This is, you know, the chronology of disaster is so interesting. One, one of um, our friends, uh, Wes Cheek, he always asks students, you know, what, wh when will the next disaster start or has it started already? <laughs> um, and it kind of always, you know, always catches the students because that they, you know, they think that it's in a future event, right? Whereas we know that it is, it has started perhaps decades ago. Um, and I, I wonder whether we can actually measure that because I guess, you know, measuring death, measuring destruction, measuring economic loss, it's, it's not easy, but it's possible, right? Because it's something that we can count. Um, but how do you count history? I think we have to turn back and get away from the idea of loss as simply the destruction, you know, the economic losses mm -hmm. uh, that you just mentioned. And if we're going to look at history, then we look at the long-term cultural social aspects as well. Mm -hmm. What were the cultural decisions? What were the, uh, the policy changes of the, the, uh, authorities of a society that led to it? Um, I think a good example might be Bhopal. Now in Bhopal, 
the people themselves of the, of the town rejected the expansion of the chemical factory. Mm-hmm. The owners of the chemical factory is, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was uh, uh, Union Carbide, I believe, um, went around the people and went to the government and paid them off. And so they were allowed to build it. So here you have a clear development of process that led to a terrible episode that is, you know, continues today uh, because people are still ill. Um, but I wanted to circle back to something else about when you brought up the um, DRR definition and and uh, hazard, and to bring up the fact that as an anthropologist, I don't think it's detailed enough. I don't think it is nuanced enough because. Who gets to judge what the hazard is? Do we say, okay, you live on a volcano, that's a hazard? Or do we go to the people mm-hmm. who say, it's been there for centuries, uh, we, we don't mind, it, it's not a risk to us? Mm-hmm. Um, there are many levels of judging the difference between hazard and risk, and they are different. A hazard, mm-hmm. you can say, is an extant reality, and risk is a judgment. Rich is uh, risk is what the people themselves and the various levels of people will consider a hazard. Um, another good example is uh, there's a city in the United States in one of our um, sort of central southern states, a large state that is built on waterways and they were all filled in with concrete and c- cement. And at the same time, in Um, a nod to development, um, it was not made law to tell people when they were buying property that they were on a flood zone. Mm. It's sort of buyer beware. You would think that you were in a different country. And so the city is is rather all on a a very mishmashy, marshy delta. Uh, And then it gets hit by tornadoes. So Mm. which is the hazard? Right. What was the risk? How was it defined? How was it uh, manipulated? And, you know, in a sense, whose who's definition is it? Mm. Mm. We've recently actually had an email from um, one of our listeners, and they, they said in the email that um, they've never really thought that a hazard, and I use it in kind of quotation marks, can be a good thing, right? Um, I, I can't really remember where we talked about it, perhaps in the last season, where, you know, there are communities who need flooding, right? Because they need it for their agricultural purposes. Um, and that, yeah, that links to your explanation of hazard, that not every hazard as we assume it to be is a hazard. No, it's a, it's a matter of uh, perception and definition, and if you want to get down to it, use. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to divide the, the very word environment into four levels. Uh, so perhaps this feeds into it. There is the physical plane in which everybody lives, you know, their particular um, niche of the, which is usually called the environment, but I, I prefer, like many anthropologists, mm-hmm. to call it the physical plane because the word environment has gotten many, many definitions to it. On top of that, you get the modified environment. Um, and that is what humans have done to the physical plane. And mm-hmm. I wager that there's no place on earth that they haven't done something. 
Right. So <laughs> they have changed uh, the course of rivers. They have lobbed off mm. mountaintops. They have built beaches and even put cities on these built um, uh, into the ocean, uh, mm. landfills. They uh, So people everywhere modify the environment. That in itself can cause perils. The, the, the physical plane can cause a peril. The modification can definitely cause a peril. Mm. And then on top of that, along the line that um, you often work in, there's the, the built environment. And mm -hmm. that is what they put on top of it. Uh, and you would think, okay, uh, people do sort of a, a simple one kind of thing on top of the environment, um, perhaps because of what's around, they use uh, rocks or they use straw. But the truth is, depending on the culture, they might build very different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, the fourth environment, which to me is the most important one, and that's the cultural one. Now, you can't say that culture determines what people do, but it certainly informs or guides. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very strong. And one of the things that's very not looked at by much of the disaster industry is the depth of culture. It's not just uh, people's costumes. It's not just their food. It's not just their religion. It, in its most deep, it has to do with what you smell and what you see and how far a distance you see, what you hear and what you're used to hearing, what you taste and prefer to taste, all the perceptual things that, to go quote back uh, uh, Huxley, the doors of perception, um, or Piaget in terms of child development, these are solidified by the time you're about 14 years old. Mm. And they're very, very hard for people uh to undo or to redo if they're displaced or if there is a disaster. Um, so you have to look at, at all of those complexities at a deep level that is rarely done. So Susanna, um Building on the uh, discussion about event and hazard-centered framing that we've been um, having, I was just thinking that rather than recognizing the fact that disasters show us where injustice and equality and oppression is occurring, we often see a framing used that responds to the event without, without looking to root causes. And Beyond that, even where systemic injustice is recognized, we often see people affected by disasters framed as weak and helpless victims. And this is maybe a critique of the vulnerability paradigm at times. So the conversation about disasters can turn from addressing root causes to ideas of humanitarianism. And in your recent presentation at the 81st annual meeting of the Society for Applied Anthropology, you talked about the false concept of humanitarianism. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about this. Yes, but let's go back a minute uh, just to the vulnerable, the, the weak and helpless, mm. and mm. that the poor, it is, and the poor and the vulnerable in terms of economically and disparities. Mm. That is that is ninety percent true. Most disaster victims. Um, are vulnerable in the sense of many root causes, um, their poverty, their housing, 
uh, the density of their populations, uh, their marginalization, their education, uh, the depreciated habitats. But that's not all. Uh, mm-hmm. The people in Malibu have fires. Mm-hmm. The flood that happened in Boulder was a very um, enlightened, well-educated community and very well off. So uh, we have to combine root causes and hazard and perception of hazard in a more complete manner to get to um, uh, what we really see as as vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 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 word often used now is exposure. I don't to myself think that it is. Uh, detailed enough that it is nuanced enough, uh, again, because it depends on people's perception. Mm. But, um, let's be careful to say, to look at, um, not, not discount the fact that hazards can happen to everyone, as we all well know now. Yeah. Um, and quite unexpectedly often. Mm. Um, and again, probably with human causes, um, mm. and then all kinds of human complications. But to get to your humanitarianism, um, the, the particular talk that I was dealing with, and it wasn't um, the chair of that panel um, misspelled what I was saying. <laughs> it's, the, <laughs> it's the politicization of humanitarian, the politicization of sympathy, the politics behind what we consider humanitarianism or sympathy. And um we are becoming, there's not a single country now that can recover from a, a disaster without the use of civil society. That is something like the Red Cross or Oxfam or Save the Children, to mention some of the big ones. And there's a dozens and dozens of little ones. Um, and there's ones with specific kinds of uh, purposes, such as uh, Doctors Without uh, uh, without Borders. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, um, what Sympathy attracts sympathy. And so people think that these are wonderful establishments. And in many levels, they are. But they also have an underbelly. And that underbelly is quite political. Um, so let's take some of the reasons what's, what's going on in the underbelly. Mm-hmm. One of them is money. Who mm-hmm. gets the money? Who, and next one is notoriety. Who gets the fame? Um, some of the big ones I mentioned won't do anything unless their name goes on it. Mm-hmm. So you will see um, Haas, Red Cross Hospital, or you will see um, Save the Children's Schools. So that that and that in itself draws back more money. What is behind the need of money? Continuity, so that they stay as organizations and they mm-hmm. pay their people. Um, mm-hmm. So. Th- there is um, then also once they get power and they do get empowered by money and notoriety, then they tend to get uh, agency. That is, they can do what they want. And very frequently what they want um, is a cookie cutter kind of agenda that doesn't take into consideration the depth of the culture or the voice of the people that they are dealing with. So they will put down... Um, what's called uh, some of these things I cannot stand uh, best practices mm-hmm. or <laughs> uh, <laughs> I also have some words to say about the concept of resiliency but never mind <laughs> you, you and me both <laughs> <laughs> oh, talk 
about something that's political and mm-hmm. something that you know, and something that, if you think about it, is a euphemism for blaming the people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. <laughs> oh, they weren't resilient. Too bad. Let them go. <laughs> um. Uh. Anyway, uh, that's what I meant about the humanitarian. You need. I think we need to look at these institutions, and they're governmental and they're non-governmental that have this aura of humanitarianism and what kind of agency they are given in terms of what they do for the, and I'm going to use the old term because I like it, victims of disasters and and victims and, and, and survivors, to use some of the old words again that we are getting back to here. Um now, that doesn't mean that the survivors don't have agency of their own and can't pull a sympathy card. They do. Uh, and they can, you know, and we see more and more of that. And uh, it's probably a good thing, though it also is politicized. It's mm. particular groups that get the voice. Um, they're vocal. They have agendas. Um, but we must look at institutions as well and see particularly uh, and, and the governmental ones in many ways, because um, they just want to get something done and get the economy going again, get something done and get tourists again. Mm-hmm. So one of the great th- one of the great examples was the Wenchun um, earthquake in uh, Sichuan, China, that killed eighty thousand people, and a large percentage of I can't pronounce it right, Qing. Uh, people, a minority in China, mm. who had a different way of living and different housing structures. The government went in and rebuilt their towns for them in the way that they thought they looked mm-hmm. so that they could then make tourist sites, something like Disneyland. Yeah. And uh, there's politics to sympathy. And uh, and I think it's time for the underbelly to be talked about. Personally, I don't give to any charity that spends more than eleven percent on its uh, staff, mm. and uh, and I'm very careful. I look. Mm. Well, I guess it's a question of who's really helping whom, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you have to realize they're also helping themselves. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think we will need a whole new episode on on the words, you know, and on resilience, so we can have a good good old rant. Um, <laughs> well, I, I I I have twenty six reasons why I don't like it written down. So that's if we do one a minute, that's a half an hour. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So you actually have a list, Susanna. I, every time I get enraged fairly easily. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> this is brilliant. Um, I, 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 I'm serious. You know, we, we will come back to you with this because Jason knows that resilience is my favorite in quotation uh, marks word. It, the rage that it kind of infuses in me uh, is, is amazing. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> and that's another thing, by the way, um, who controls the definition of resilience, who controls uh-huh. going in and, and telling a community that they are resilient, right. who they actually speak to, which is usually petty officials, and they learn the program, but they don't tell any people because they treat it like a treasure, right? Uh-huh. They they know, you know, all the things they're supposed to do for uh, risk reduction, but they don't tell the population mm. <laughs> because yeah. that would be giving away their knowledge. <laughs> 
In your introduction to the second edition of Anger Earth um, that you've co-edited with um, Anthony Oliver Smith and that Jason has so kindly gifted me. Oh, so excited <laughs> when I received the parcel. Um, anyway, uh, so in the introduction you, you write, and I quote, Disasters, disaster books and articles persist in referring to events as natural. The media thrives on the terminology. It is, after all, mollifying. Drastic effort is needed, especially at the point that we have achieved to eliminate the notion and the attribution it conveys. More certainly, it requires amendment in scientific and popular conversation. It distorts the theoretical and substantive elucidation and misleads public understanding, much less action. End of quote. Um, and I, I absolutely love how succinctly you've explained the implications of um, natural disasters misnomer. Mm -hmm. And so how do you think we need to change the narrative about disasters so that we, um, as a society, you know, as kind of experts in quotation marks, as academics, just as people, uh, truly appreciate that disasters are not natural? And you've alluded to this earlier today. Um, so how do we hold those who are responsible for disaster risk crea creation accountable? You've got two things going here. One is the uh, disabusing people of the fact that it is a natural disaster. But the second one is responsibility. Uh, so let's separate those for a moment because uh, uh, responsibility can lead to witch hunting, and I'm not sure that gets us anywhere. Mm. Um, let's just go back to the fact that and we've already brought it up today, so I'll, I'll go back to it. All disasters are human-caused at some level or another. Mm. So let's look at ways in which... Um, the Ninth Ward, for example, in New Orleans had the worst part of the disaster, but they were also underwater. They were the lowest, they were the poorest, um, and that the fact of their condition was ignored. Um, let's uh, look at, I'm trying to think of some, the one I brought up about Bhopal, that was human caused, not just by the factory, but by the fact that it was uh, deliberately uh, a dangerous factory was put there by humans. Um, generally, it has to do with the modification of the environment, the building of uh, some kind of uh, structure that is dangerous. There have been some very bad oil tanker fires along mm. railway lines recently. Um, there is uh, uh, something like the uh, okay. Let's 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 look at Fukushima. Mm. Um, here was, talk about chronology, um, Japan had had in that area a 0.9 earthquake before. Mm. So they decided to operate on probability as opposed to possibility. This is one of the big problems. Just because something happened before doesn't mean it's not going to happen again. And you get these predictions. Uh, the Boulder flood one is the thousand-year flood. Oh, so everybody thinks it's not going to happen again. Mm. Well, Boulder lies right under the jet stream. It's going to happen again. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so um, they had taken everybody back 40 feet from the coastlines and um, at 
for fear of tsunami, but they had forgotten about that and relaxed it because the earthquake wasn't going to happen again for a thousand years. Well, the earthquake did happen again. They also hadn't built the, 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 the tsunami walls, which again, it's a physical structure, wouldn't have done any good in that particular one. Anyway, the tsunami was higher, but they'd let people back down there again. On top of that, the human cause part of it was they built uh, an atomic a nuclear power plant on a coastline, which, and coastlines, as we all know, are inherently dangerous. And if you live on the Pacific Rim, they're particularly dangerous. Hmm. It was a third generation um, nuclear uh, facility. They're all over Europe. Everybody knows that they have a design fault. The design fault is easily taken care of um, with some water tanks on top. They didn't do it because the earthquake wasn't going to happen, even though they had water right in front of them. Hmm. So here is the combination of elements that have led now to a terrible disaster, a triple disaster, in which people are never going to be able to return to where they lived before. Hmm. Hmm. Um, the earthquake was a physical event, but the disaster was not natural. It was human-caused. Mm. Um, most of our hurricanes that are happening of say in Florida, um, are the results of building processes and, um, development of, uh, uh, high end structures, multiple story buildings, um, that, uh, shouldn't be there. Um, the Izmit earthquake in Turkey, um, part of the reason the damage was so bad and, um, is that people would get a building permit for a two-story building and then build eight stories. And they're on an earthquake line, a very, very active earthquake line. On top of them building eight stories, now they have automobiles, so they go in under the building and take away the pillars so that they can park under the building. So basically what you have built, and the population was huge, uh, for about 35,000 people died, but the city itself was... Uh, a few million people. What they built for Halsey's people was a pancake. Uh, you know, it, and the buildings collapsed. Um, these are what I'm talking about in terms of there is no such thing. There was, there was an earthquake. It was uh, 7.2, not that bad in some respects. But when you have a structures built on top of eight-story uh, apartment buildings with no pillars underneath um, and no... And, and permits only for two stories, that's a human disaster. That's a human-built disaster. Mm. Now, what can we do about that? Uh, I think more than I would say governmental policies is education. I think the more that we hammer and hammer and hammer that disasters are socially caused, culturally caused, by um, ignoring risk, um, by... Uh, development by neoliberal, uh, you know, policies that impoverish more and more people, by um, urbanization, um, by coastal urbanization, by uh, Western society living Western ideals so that more and more people want the material goods that, um, that Westerners have. We are, you know, we're building vulnerability, huge vulnerability everywhere. Um, by and it's, it's a matter of education, uh, mostly to get 
the notion across. A book just came out in Australia that's been having terrible disasters that has as its title, Natural Disasters, by a disaster expert. Oh. Uh, yes. <laughs> There's been a lot of flack, <laughs> to say the least. I can imagine. <laughs> Um, and Australia has defended it by saying, but it's an embedded notion. That's the notion we have to use because it's embedded. Well, disasters themselves are embedded too. So if we're going to get rid of disasters, let's get rid of notions. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think in the US, where you and I are, Susanna, we certainly face more pushback maybe than in in Europe, for instance, when we um, argue this point, because it it is certainly more embedded in um, the in society and within um, agencies, within governmental speak. But I, yeah, it's it's a hard one. I I think sometimes. Um, I find it to be, and I've talked about this before, I find it to be a useful um, way to get people talking because when you say you're a disaster researcher in this country, you know what the first question is, right? It's, oh, natural disasters, right? <laughs> so, yes. it's it's like a, it's something that the public, um, it's it's front and center in their mind, right? So, it's, it's mm-hmm. very easy to immediately um, unpack that. Um, so yeah, and in some ways we meet people where they are. It kind of depends on your situation, but it's, it's another thing to say that we should be promoting this misnomer. (laughs) No, we shouldn't. Um, and there's a number of reasons. If you say natural disaster, it does, it goes back to, uh, what Kanisha was saying. It relieves the responsibility. I mean, it essentially becomes God's fault. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, um, or just the environment, and it, and you don't even have to think of uh, what aspects were under it. Um, the Boulder flood is one of my favorite ones because here's a community of extremely environmentally interested people, but they didn't know that the word Boulder, the name of their town, was because of all of the boulders that had washed down from the mountains. Wow. Um, and I kept saying to them, what do you think this is a natural disaster that you built where clearly there are dry ditches everywhere and huge mm. boulders and right outside the town is a glacial moraine? Yeah. <laughs> what, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know? mm. um, so it, it just was easier for them to think um, uh, it, it came from nature. It was an unusual storm rather than to think that they had built on the physical plane um, and, uh, and ignoring where clearly this kind of event had happened many, many times. Hmm. Um, we have, to, uh, it's education and it's slow and it's sure. And it's no, it's because people built that way. If you're suddenly people in Houston discovered that they were built on a floodplain and hadn't realized they they built a house there. Mm. It has to be on every level of our society. I don't think we're good, we can have edicts beyond saying flood zones and don't build here or tornado alleys. Um, by government, as much as we need to have, it required that people be informed mm. and people right. be educated. Mm. 
That's fantastic. It's been really great to talk to you today, Susanna, and we really appreciate your participation in this series where we return to some of these core discussions about what is a disaster. And um, I think I think we are leaving people with a lot to think about now and reflect on. So yeah, we appreciate you. We appreciate your work and um, for spending time with us today. Well, I want to tell you there are four more books coming out. Okay, tell <laughs> us. Very quickly. Well, one is called um, Cooling Down. It's with uh, Thomas Island Erickson, who wrote Overheating, and Paulo Mendes. And it's on local responses to um, a global uh, climate change. That's coming out in November. Great. And then there's one called uh, Nostalgia Ecology Topkalja, which is pain of past, pain of home, and pain of place. And it is on the difficulties and fiasco and an unending problem of displaced people, mm. which with climate change and disasters has gotten huge. There's about 80 million a year now, about two every minute of day of people displaced around the world. Yeah. The third one I didn't want it, I wasn't thinking of doing, but the publishing head of the publishing company asked for one on COVID. And mm -hmm. so for an anthropologist, it's an interesting one. It is called Inplacement, and it's the study of isolation instead, instead of the study of groups. Mm. And uh, the last one is the one you brought up, the politics of sympathy. <laughs> mm. Amazing. We, that's a, you've been that's so amazing. busy. And um, <laughs> we, we look forward to, to these upcoming books. And um, yeah, please let us know when you have links. We can always add the links to the books in the notes for the, for the episode when we release the episode. Okay, well, don't forget about Disaster Upon Disaster. That came okay. out as well as Angry Earth last year because it has to do with a lot of what we've talked about today, mm. the gaps between what we know and what gets into policy. Mm. Mm. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. Uh -huh, you're welcome. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Xenia, Jason, and me, Susanna Hoffman, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. <laughs>